Welcome, valuable PhD, to another Cheeky Scientist radio show. As always, you can join us for our next live show on our Facebook page where we stream the show live every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Just go to facebook.com forward slash my cheeky scientist. We also stream the show live every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on our Cheeky Scientist YouTube page. This is the radio show for PhDs who want to excel in industry. If you want to learn more about Cheeky Scientist or our program, the Cheeky Scientist Association, you can go to phdsgethired.com. Just enter your name and email address, and we will send you all of our free materials about transitioning into industry. What is the Cheeky Scientist Association? It is the world's largest training program for PhDs by PhDs that includes a complete blueprint of how to transition into industry and a private job referral network only of PhDs in industry and transitioning into industry. If you already have an industry job or if you want to learn more about developing your business acumen for industry, You can learn about our Scientist MBA Advanced Program at phdsgethired.com. We have another great show lined up for you today, so we're going to jump in now. Furthermore, the equation E is equal to mc squared. And here's the discovery. Very excited for today's show. We are talking about the anti-academic career path and choosing yourself in your career. Welcome officially to another Cheeky Scientist radio show. I am Isaiah Hankel, a Cheeky Scientist. This is the place to be if you are a PhD who wants to transition into industry and excel in business. The place to be, we bring on top guests for you to learn, not just about transitioning, but also about leadership and business, about thinking outside the box and choosing a career path that's right for you. In fact, that's the topic for today, the anti-academic career path and choosing yourself in your career. Welcome to another Cheeky Scientist Radio Show. So I'm excited to talk about this because I think there are a lot of issues happening in academia that go beyond just the technical, right? So we talk about the numbers a lot. Postdoctoral positions are swelling, of course, and professorships, full-time professorships, tenure professorships are dropping. But what kind of a emotional impact is this, hap- uh, is this having on PhDs, right? And, and we like to talk about the emotional side, but also you know, the practical side. What do you do? What do you do about this? Okay, people are feeling worse. Great. Is there anything that we can do about it? We don't want to get stuck, you know, in the, uh, you know, the, the anxiety that we've all had to deal with in, in our PhD, but we want to create a plan for you. And so we have uh, some, some great resources and guests that we're going to talk to about that. So I'm going to share my screen here and I'm going to bring Jeanette back on. And we're going to talk through some of these studies that have come up recently. So, Jeanette, question. Mental health, we hear a lot about it. You know, there's a great article, several great articles in Nature that have been published. Um, we've talked about those on previous radio shows. Um, there's, a, there's this article that was in Inside Higher Ed. The title is Mental Health Crisis for Grad Students. I got to be honest. When I heard about this, you know, I heard, uh, you know, I guess rumblings about this back when I was in graduate school. 
even after. And I was like, ah, oh, it's not that bad, whatever. Until, you know, until I experienced it myself. And I, I think I've experienced a little bit on, you know, both of these are looking on this figure at anxiety and depression. I'll just kind of give an overview of it. And then I can ask, I'll ask you a few questions for those of you listening by audio on the left side, there's two bar graphs. One's for anxiety. It says 41%. One's for depression. It says 39%. Um, so Jeanette, what is that in relation to? Is that 41% of all graduate students have experienced anxiety? Yes. That's what that one means. Yeah. 41% of uh, grad students reported experiencing anxiety and it wasn't just grad students. It did include also um, some postdocs, but it was the vast majority of the people in the survey were uh, PhD students. Um, and then you also can see the same, it's the same for depression there where 39% of those PhD students had experienced depression. Yes. And 39% of experienced depression. Now for me, I'm like, well, this is only, you know, this is, this is not even half. I mean, whatever, like it's hard. Get over oh, it. man, it's only not even half of the people are, are depressed. <laughs> There's a series of charts on the right that we didn't go into yet, Jeanette. And to remind everybody that the, the, this is an inside higher ed review and it's called the mental health crisis of grad students. So what I'm seeing on the right is five different categories, provides mentorship, provides ample support, positive emotional impact, asset to your career, and feels valued by mentor. Blue bars indicate agree. They're right around the 35% level for anxiety. A about the same, but a little bit lower for depression. And then the reddish bars are uh, disagree. And it's around 50% for anxiety and also around 50% for depression. So can you walk us through what these values mean, Jeanette? Yeah, of course. So for this figure, what they're sort of trying to highlight is the difference that having a positive mentor can have on the levels of anxiety and depression that PhD students were feeling. So when they had, or when they even thought, <laughs> it doesn't even mean that that's actually the case, when they thought that their mentor was supportive and an asset to their career and they felt valued by their mentor, they experienced lower amounts of anxiety. So that's that 35%. Um, and lower amounts of depression as well. But when they disagreed with that statement, when they felt that their advisor or their mentor were not helpful, they didn't feel valued, it was a bad situation, their levels of anxiety and depression went up to above, in some cases, above 50% of, of those people were experiencing those symptoms. Yes. And so what's the overall takeaway here in terms of the influence that your PI or the people you're around has on you and, and your anxiety or depression levels? Yeah, so they definitely can influence you, right? So I think that the big takeaway for me is that sometimes you can't control who your specific advisor is, but you can find other mentors. Mm. Kind of like what James was just saying, choose a different tribe, <laughs> look yeah. somewhere else and find a mentor that you really can look up and that makes you feel valued, yes. right? So you can find that positive relationship rather than relying on one that's built in for you that's not working. Yeah, and... I, I love that connection because most of us, again, you have put all of your feelings of success into the hands of just one tribe, academia. Not only that, but just one person, your PI or a handful of people, your thesis committee. And if they don't like you on a certain day, you're going to feel crappy about yourself. But if you had multiple tribes, you got involved in different groups, you know, not just student groups, you know, we we try to make a differentiation between like your red ocean network and your blue ocean network, right? A network that's outside of academia doesn't include just other PhDs um, who are all kind of, you know, very uh, 
I guess, voracious in terms of looking for jobs and in terms of being critical of data and very focused on just that academic tribe, go out and find a different tribe. Get involved in uh, business investing groups or architecture groups or art groups, whatever. Some place where you can learn and where people will like you so that even if you have a bad day in academia, it's like, so what? It's really that simple. And you might be thinking, well, I don't have time to do this. You're thinking that because you're still trying to make that one tribe happy. That one tribe, academia, is the center of your universe. Maybe even one or two of the alphas, as James says, right? Whether it's, uh, you, you know, you, your professor, thesis committee member, etc. Your success and happiness is completely dependent on that person, the leader of that tribe. You have to diversify, right? And I, I love that he used that, te- that, um, that word because it's the same thing you would want to do for investing or stock, something else James talks a lot about. You have to do that for your tribes too. So great. Great uh, tie-in there. So this next figure is from uh, a PubMed article. What is this? Is this frontal psychology? I think it's frontiers. Frontiers. Okay. Frontal could have worked. I was thinking the, the brain. Um, revisiting the link between job satisfaction and life satisfaction, the role of basic psychological needs. Um, so, you know, the, the main takeaway here I know is that job satisfaction and life satisfaction are linked now more than ever. Um, and that's something else that, that, that James brought up. So, can you break down what this figure means? Because what we're seeing here on the left is three boxes, life satisfaction, gender, age. On the right is job satisfaction. And there's some arrows going back and forth. Maybe you can walk us through this. Yeah, of course. So this figure um, was a survey of almost 700 uh, people. And it was actually done in Chile. So there's a lot of um, studies like this in um, Western culture. And so this one was really interesting is it sort of like brings this story to everyone in the world. Like it's trying to explain, expand this idea of the connection between life satisfaction and job satisfaction, that it's not just a Western thing. Mm. Um, and anyway, but the figure is looking at the influence of job satisfaction and on life satisfaction. And then also gender and age, do those have any influence on your life satisfaction or your job satisfaction? Mm. And the big takeaway, like you just said, is that it's very clear. Um, you can see there's an arrow pointing between them um, that there was a correlation uh, between life satisfaction and job satisfaction. Um, and that was a statistically significant number, right? Yes. Um, and so they looked again at the same thing to see like, does your gender or your age influence your life satisfaction? And the answer was no, right? Mm. There's really no correlation there. And if there is, it's very small. Mm. Um, and they do the same thing with gender and age and looking at job satisfaction. So does your gender or your age influence the satisfaction of your job? And for gender, the answer was no. Um, and if you look at age, it's slightly. There's a small connection. And I think that sort of makes sense, right? As we, like, I don't know, I've, I, yeah, as you, like, age, you sort of, like, gain a better understanding of what exactly you want. Yeah. And I think that allows you to find higher satisfaction. Rather than, not that your life changes that much, but sort of you understand what you want and you go find it. Um, And so that can lead to that bit of a change. But the big point is that your job satisfaction and your life satisfaction are linked and it goes both ways as well. So the more satisfied you are in your job, the more satisfied you're going to be in your life. And the more satisfied you are in your life, the more satisfied you're going to be in your job. It's a really fun um, connection. Yeah, and I, I, you know, it always reminds me of, you know, different quotes like, it's, you know, it's not personal, it's business. Or... And I always think of this movie scene. I think it's from Aaron Brockovich where somebody's saying something to her about it's just business, it's not personal. And she's saying, this is time away from my kids. This is, you know, all these hours that I spent doing this. 
it's a myth that business and life are separate. And this data shows that. It's pretty significant if you think about it, no pun intended, because the p-values are actually significant. Life and job satisfaction are tied together. Um, they're merged in today's world. We get a lot of our self-worth, um, purpose, et cetera, out of these things, and you need to acknowledge it. So if your life is feeling you know, crappy now, take a look at how things are going at work and vice versa. And so if you are not happy in academia now, you, you know, your life is not going to be happy, right? That's why you are, might be experiencing anxiety, depression, et cetera, because it, it has, it's a powerful uh, influencer. Yeah. Um, and so many of us have been there, like to that, at that place where you're struggling, just, I don't know, just to know, like every, we've all been there, right? I think it's like, yeah. especially this group of people, like all of us understand that frustration that you can feel in academia and to know that a lot of times the reason that your whole life feels like that is just because of the work you're doing. Right. Mm. So if you switch that up, if you give that a shot, you can totally change the entire trajectory of what you're feeling. Yeah. Great point. Yeah. So if, I mean, if you're, if your life is bad right now, I mean, stop the search, the search is over. It's really, it can, it's probably your career. I mean, it, it's very likely start there. And if you need to change, go through those steps that James talked about. First, make sure you're not around negative people all the time. You know, a lot of academic institutions, departments, labs, right, whatever, you, people go from being critical of the data to, and critical of, like, you know, the work and scrutinizing, you know, discovery to scrutinizing each other and to being critical of themselves and each other. And so if you're around those kind of people, you need to diversify your tribe, diversify your network. And then you have to get into that discovery mindset. That's one of the things I really like about James's writing is he's all about ideas and you know, writing down 10 new ideas every day, even if they're ridiculous. They do this at some of the largest companies in the world, like Google. I forget what they call it, but they'll just get in a room and say, no ideas off limits. I remember I was reading an article on it. One of the ideas that came up during one of these meetings was, what if we said we want to have free internet for the entire world and we just put up these like uh, Wi-Fi boxes on like uh, weather balloons into the sky? People are like, that's ridiculous, right? It's always our first reaction, but anything's possible. They actually have done this now, right? There's several places where they've had these balloons that have like these Wi-Fi, I don't know what they're like, routers or something in into the, the sky, not into space and the satellites, but at a lower level and give people free Wi-Fi. So anything is possible. And if you get into that discovery mindset, it opens you up to possibilities and opportunities and moves, moves you mentally away from limitations. Um, so I really like that. So one more, uh, one more figure here. Uh, not an advanced figure, but really just three circles. And the title is... <laughs> pretty simple. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty simple. Even I can follow this one. Uh, creating meaning and purpose at work. Okay, so the link we have here is from ResearchGate, but I think it's from uh, uh, Wiley Blackwell Handbook of the Psychology of Positivity and Strengths-Based strength Approaches at Work. What I love about this is that there was a, law, a, a long time in psychology and science in general where like the science of happiness this is ridiculous you can't study this etc but of course you can and there's real world effects to it and it's a kind of it's a really blossoming field but we're going to try to make it very tangible and practical here the three circles the inner circle says what uh, work that makes you feel meaningful and has an identifiable identifiable point and purpose in the organization the second circle on the outside of this circle says work that is in harmony with and helps provide meaning in work a worker's personal life so again, we're talking about that, how that connection happens between your work life and personal life. And then the final circle on the very, the very outer ring is work that provides the opportunity to benefit others or some greater good. So you see a trend in terms of how the circles are expanding and what, you know, what each you know, circle influences. Maybe you could 
help us break down that trend? Yeah, of course. So for me, this is sort of like, how do we find that job satisfaction that we just talked about, right? Like, so we want job satisfaction so we can have a life satisfaction. How do we get it? Right. And it's about finding a place where you can do work that's meaningful to you. And then that starts with in the middle where that particular company I has identified like a mission. So the company has a mission and your work has a place in that company's mission. Yes. So that's that first inner circle. The second one is that you agree with their mission, right? So you think that it's a good idea to do this mission and you feel like your work is helping get there. Mm. And then the last circle is that that mission actually helps everyone. So that mm. the mission is good for the whole world or the entire community that you're serving. Yes. Um, and so those three things together, they call it the transcendence, right? So you like reach this third level of transcendence. But the idea is that you, you just get to a place where your job feels meaningful and purposeful and that makes it satisfying. Mm. Yeah, and this has been used in, in different uh, kind of pop culture things. You know, uh, it's called the goal, the, I think, who was it? The book is Start With Why, and it's like the golden circle or something. And it's like going from why to what to how. Really, here's the key takeaway, is that your, what you do for your career and what you do for your, your life and how you feel is connected to why you're doing it, your purpose. And purpose matters. And you want to get alignment of the purpose of what's going on at work with your purpose and then having a purpose in the greater community. I will also say, let me reverse this. People can use this against you. And I think in academia, it's been used against a lot of PhDs because, you know, you're running your 500th, 5 millionth gel and you're doing seriously what instruments are doing, like robots are doing in industry, but your PI or somebody's telling you, like, you're having a massive impact. This pipetting really matters and you're changing the world with what you do, right? Like, our, what, what you're doing here matters. That's more important than what you're being paid. That's more important than whatever. So people will try to use purpose and meaning against you. And you have to decide for yourself if you're actually having the impact you want to have in the way you want to have it. Okay? Don't just allow yourself to be a, you know, a worker, somebody relegated to the corner uh, of a lab or uh, in industry. We talk a lot about that. Make sure that you are doing what you want to do and you're having the impact that you want to have. And ideally, that impact is aligned with the company's impact. Any final thoughts, Jeanette? Yeah, to... I think just one final thing is to do that, like to find those companies that align with your personal ideals or whatever they are, is informational interviews, right? Like do them. Do informational interviews and ask questions at your interviews, right? Yes. Be specific and ask those questions that matter to you to find out if it's a good fit. And if it's not, you can say no. That's, I think, the takeaway from this is you, exactly. will, you will find a job that's right for you interview the companies and even on your informational interviews ask these purpose these why questions it's more important than ever and guess what you're going to be asked them uh most behavioral questions start with why because why is a difficult topic to to broach so again thanks jeanette appreciate your time please thank you thanks for jumping on james how are you good how's it going isaiah pretty good thanks for coming on i appreciate you making time no, I'm, I'm happy you invited me. Yeah, so I, I got a quick bio here. I'm just going to run through. So James Altucher is on with us currently. He's a top 10 LinkedIn influencer and a very prolific writer, successful entrepreneur, chess master, venture capitalist. Um, he has invested in, started, or advised 30 different companies. Um, he writes, I wish I could write at his level as much as he does at the quality that he does. He has the Altucher Confidential. Um, which has had more than 10 million readers since it launched in 2010. His podcast, you have to check out his podcast. Go to the James Altucher Show. 
consistently ranked in the top for business podcasts in a variety of different categories, 50 million downloads. We, I don't, I think we have like, I don't even know, like I'm not even a 10th of that. So he's, he's just amazing to listen to. Very, very uh, exciting. His new book, which I'll show, we'll put links in there. Um, the one that I was looking at recently is reinvent yourself. Love the cover with the, the astronaut. Uh, so we'll put the links in there. And then after James is off, I'll show all of this by video and uh, definitely check out jamesaltucher.com. James, one of the articles that I read quite a bit uh, when I was going through like my, my career change was living life is better than dying in college. <laughs> and so, you know, one of the things I've, I've watched you write about a lot is investing in the right things, whether it's yourself, et cetera. Maybe you could just start by telling us why investing in academia or the academic career path in general, even at the undergraduate level, is, uh, is a mistake for many and is not sustainable in today's world anymore. Right. And I think, I think the key is the word many, because, you know, not, not any one solution, uh, you know, can fit everyone. I, I'm not, who am I to say nobody should ever go to college? But I think, I think there's two issues. One's societal and one's personal. Personal to the individual as opposed to societal for society. The societal issue is that the backing of student loans, which, while they have good intentions, you know, the, the government helping people, young people get an education by lending them money. It's sort of, that, that's sort of this 50 year plan that's backfired. And so what ends up happening is college tuitions, because they know the government is gonna pay them, college tuition, college presidents have raised their tuitions every single year higher than inflation for 50 years in a row. And so that, so, so now 20 million people are in massive debt. That's the entire middle class is in massive debt. People below the middle class get financial aid. People above the middle class don't pay, uh, you know, don't have loans. And so you get this massive income inequality in society so that an entire generation of children, 22 year olds, they have to work, you know, at, you know, jobs they don't like in order to pay down the debt instead of, you know, being innovative and being the next generation of entrepreneurs. Now, on an individual level, it's very important if you find out, you know, if you're lucky enough to know your, your passions and the things you love, then just explore those. You don't have to, you know, do a French requirement and a, a science requirement and a this requirement and that requirement. Study where your passions take you and start putting in the 10,000 hours so you can be among the greatest in the world and you can build your, your subculture and what you love and, and, and you, could, you could develop young in what you, in what you love doing. I don't, really, I, you know, I don't really remember, well, let me just give you an example. I went to a very good school for computer science. Then I went to graduate school for computer science. So I was a good student, good enough to get into graduate school. And then when I got my very first job as a computer programmer, uh, uh, I was so bad at my job, they had to send me to remedial school for computer programming just to catch up to all the other employees. And it wasn't really that hard of a job. It was just my first job out of, and I went to the, one of the, I was a good student. I went to the best schools and I didn't really learn anything in what I was passionate about. Now mm. that's anecdotal. Does that apply to everyone? No, but it applies to a lot of people. If I want to be a writer, you should start writing. You don't need to take, you don't need to study, you know, Shakespeare. If you don't like Shakespeare, read the books you love and start writing every day. That's the only way to be a great writer. If you want to be a great musician, 
yeah, a tutor helps, but do what the Beatles did and start playing 20 hours a day in some, you know, random nightclub until you get great. Like that, the only way to get great at something is to do something. And sure, having mentors and tutors and teachers help, but college is not the environment for that. College, you take, you know, five different classes on different subjects a semester, and then, you know, some people go to parties at night, some people do you know, <laughs> other things, and, and there's a lot of different reasons for college, but it's not just education. And if you're focused on education and being the best at what you love doing, college is not the right place to go. Yeah. And, and so for, for those of you listening, you know, James's path, he went to grad school. I mean, it's very similar to a lot of you. He, he was in STEM. A lot of you are in STEM. Yeah. And he got into industry and there was kind of a disconnect. So what we're trying to talk about here is, okay, how do you make that transition? And for most of you, you're very comfortable in academia. You haven't even made that transition yet. And, you know, the pain isn't enough for you to, you know, finally make the jump. And, you know, this is something you talked a lot about, James. And, and what I wanted to talk about next was, you know, how, how can you maybe increase the pain so that you make that transition before it's too late, right? So you've changed career paths. You've, you've had to hit rock bottom before to make a change as some of the, the, the articles and the things you've spoken about that I enjoy the most. What, what could somebody who's on a similar path that you were, where they went to the graduate school level, you know, they're trying to change careers, get into something that they don't feel, they, they have imposter syndrome, they don't feel like they can excel in that different career path, and so they stay where they're comfortable. What can they do to push themselves, you know, either psychologically or maybe even put them in a position where they, they have to go forward, they have to change? I mean, I, yeah, that's, a, that's such a great question, and, and there's not a one-sentence answer. There's kind of like a pyramid of answers. So let's the found first. You have to build the foundation. You have to build the foundation of where you're able to physically and psychologically make a change from something you've already invested a lot of time and energy and maybe money into. And that foundation is if you're if you if you if you're saying to yourself, okay, I need to make a big change. You got to be ready for it. You've got to be physically healthy. You've got to be psychologically healthy, which means you know. Eliminate the toxic people in your life. Eliminate the people who say, no, you can't do that. Or, no, you, you, you shouldn't make that change. That's such a bad decision for you. Mm. Or they try to put you down. Or, so that's really important. It doesn't sound like, I'm not giving you like a tactical thing. Like, here's what you study. Here's what, what, what website you go to. But this thing is even more, eliminating toxic people and being healthy are probably the two most important things you could do to prepare the foundation to make a change. Then... Mm. Practice your creativity. Creativity is a muscle like any other muscle. So yes. make sure you're being creative every day. And I get, and most people aren't focused on being creative every day. I guarantee you within three to six months of even just writing down 10 ideas a day, you will have your, your, your idea muscle will be an idea machine. So mm -hmm. you need that in place as well. Then for whatever you want to learn, identify the micro skills of what you learn. As an example, let's say you want to be good at business. There's no such thing as business skill. Business skill is divided into micro skills. There's negotiating, there's sales, there's product development, there's execution, there's uh, monetizing, uh, there's marketing, there's leadership and management and motivation. So these are all skills you have to develop to have this umbrella skill of business. Hmm. You know, uh, you know, 
I, I, for instance, I, in the past year, a couple of years, I've wanted to learn to, to be a, a stand-up comedian just, just for fun, just to get myself out of my comfort zone because it helps in other areas of life. Hmm. And I realized there's no skill, as, uh, there's no such skill as stand-up comedy. There's humor, there's likability, there's yes. crowd work, there's stage presence. You have to be good at all of these micro skills. Okay, so that's the next layer. Next layer after that, Frank Shamrock, who's probably the best, you know, ultimate fighting champion of all time, he told me this. And, and, and I, I found that it's true for every big change in my life. Find your plus minus equal. The plus is a mentor to teach you, and that might be a real mentor. It might be a virtual mentor through books and videos. doesn't matter. Your equals are the team of people around you who are also striving to succeed, and they challenge you, and you challenge them, and you compare notes, and you exchange mm -hmm. ideas, and you grow up as a scene with them. And that happens in every area of life. If you look back at even the computer age, Steve Jobs, Steve Wozniak, uh, Bill Gates, uh, Paul Allen, Steve, they were all hanging out together practically as barely more than teenagers, and they created the entire computer age. So every industry has this, you, you, yes. the, the equals. And then there's the minus, which is, you can't really know anything unless you can explain it. So make sure you can always explain at like a third grade level what it is you're learning and, you know, find people to teach and, and share what you're learning as you're learning it. And, and you'll, you'll find you'll learn much better and you'll learn the nuances much faster. So plus minus equal. And then there's a, and then the final top of this pyramid is just do it. The Nike expression, just simply do what you love. If you love writing, write a lot. If you love computer programming, computer program a lot. If you want to start businesses, start side hustles or businesses or do whatever you can to monetize your interests. And if you love programming, download some software and modify it. Don't start from scratch. But modify a piece of software so you can just start doing things and mm. so on. Yeah, so I think that's great. And the, you know, the plus equal minus thing, I don't know where I first heard that. Maybe it was your show, but it's easy to forget about the minus one because you think that there's maybe no value in mentoring others, but one of the best ways to learn is to teach. And, and so I think that was, that's a, it's a great model. And, um, and, and again, even, even if you're new at an area, well, let's say you just start computer programming. So you're not an expert. You're not a professor. You're not a PhD. You haven't been doing it that long. Heck, write some code and explain to somebody what the code does and, and why the code does it. And, and then you understand, again, the nuances, and maybe you start, and then they ask questions, and they, those, those questions make you think of things that you haven't thought of before. So you don't have to be an expert to find your minuses and start explaining. You become an expert by finding your minuses. Yeah, absolutely. And for, to make it practical for a lot of you, you're looking for a job. We talk about publishing on LinkedIn, blog articles. Learn something or the field you want to go into. Explain it. Write a quick review. Publish it. It makes it increases your exposure, and it, it falls into that plus minus model too. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, James, last question, and I again, I really appreciate it. Uh, I want to respect your time here. Some people on here are really, I don't know, uh, and I, I don't know. You know, I know you've maybe experienced this too. You get you you limit yourself. You you just you get built up around a lot of limiting beliefs. I think academia, in some senses, at the highest level, can really brainwash you into thinking that there's one path for you to be successful at. And you don't even realize it, but you've defined success in one way and there's no other ways for you to be successful. And you're in this kind of like this dark place where you don't really see a way out. You've lost your purpose. You've realized that your current path's a dead end. I know you went through this framework, but 
you know, is there an even deeper, darker level where there's something you can do to just shake that off and show yourself that there's possibilities? Yeah. I mean, I think it's understanding, you know, the idea, this is a 2 million year old idea or, or, or longer, which is that we're tribal animals. So we get into a setting and, and like, for instance, I loved academic computer science. I went to graduate school for it. And so now I'm, then I put myself in that tribe and the professors who are famous for publishing a lot, they're at the top of that tribe. They're the alpha of that tribe. Then maybe the up and coming professors are next and the great, the, the, the genius students are the next. And then of course there was me at the Omega level of students. And, uh, uh, but then we move into another subculture and it's a natural instinct to put yourself in that tribe. Like, oh, investors, do I run a big hedge fund, a medium-sized hedge fund? Are my returns good? Blah, blah, blah. Or stand-up comedy. Do I have a Netflix special? Am I on Comedy Central? Am I on Stephen Colbert? Or am I just performing at comedy clubs and nobody's laughing? So we natural instinct to place yourself in a tribe. But that's all artificial. Nobody cares if you're if you're making jokes in front of 30 people in a dark comedy club and no one's laughing. It's an opportunity to learn. So whenever I find myself in a subculture or a hierarchy where I'm feeling that those neurochemicals released, like the cortisol that happens when you feel like you're losing, you're slipping from the tribe, you're losing status, hmm. I diversify tribes. So, okay, tonight wasn't so good for stand-up comedy. I'm going to focus on businesses or I'm going to focus on writing or I'm going to focus on investing. So make sure you diversify the tribes that you're in and also just be aware that these, that these feelings you have, whether it's uh, success or failure, is all related to whether you feel the tribe is accepting you or rejecting you. And try to just be aware of that so you can, again, diversify from the tribes and just awareness is the key to freedom. You want to just be your own self and, and pave your own way and avoid all of these you know, primal you know, neurochemical instincts. Yeah. And, it, and for those of you watching where you've made academia, your only tribe for the last 25 years, it, it might seem simple, but it really can be just diversify your tribe. Uh, don't link your entire success to that tribe. So please exactly. don't link your success to that, to one tribe. Perfect. Thank you, James, for your time. I really appreciate it. Uh, please thank James in the chat box if you're one of our special members that gets to join us in Zoom. And then if you're watching us publicly, please thank James as well. Please check out his book. The one that I love the most, I'm just going to show it here. I hope it's okay to say uh, Choose Yourself is uh, my favorite book. So check out that book. I would start there and then you can dig in. He's such a prolific writer. Check out his new book, Reinvent um, Yourself. I think you have that for free on Kindle right now on Amazon or maybe I was just seeing. I think so, yeah, for Amazon Prime. Yeah, Amazon Prime. And I'll show all these after James leaves this. Uh, but please thank him again. James, thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much. Thanks for having me on here. I really appreciate it. Bye, everyone. Our next guest is Philip Kruger. Very excited to have him on. I'm going to show his bio, and then we're going to bring him on live, and we're going to have a great discussion with him as well. Great show. Two excellent um, special guests. Philip Kruger did his BS at the University of, oh no, he can help me say this once we bring him on, Tubegin, Tubegin. Uh, and recently uh, finished his PhD in immunology at the University of Oxford, Oxford, UK, probably heard of it. He is the author of the Nature article, Why It Is Not Failure to Leave Academia. This is a fantastic article. I'm going to show it on the screen here before we bring him on. 
Um, it's about how PhD students can prepare for different careers and how lab heads can help. Um, he's currently a career outreach fellow at the Career Services at the University of Oxford, where he runs career development activities and gives presentations and uh, workshops quite frequently. His LinkedIn page is here. Go to his LinkedIn page. We'll put it in the chat box. Connect with him. He's a great author, is a great resource, a great advocate for PhDs. Very excited to have him on. His article that I want all of you to check out, we'll put this link in the chat box and wherever you're watching this, wherever we are live streaming. Why it is not failure to leave academia. Here's how PhD students can prepare for different careers and how lab heads can help. Hi, Philip. How are you? Can you see me okay? Yes, I can see you. Thanks. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Yeah, thanks for coming on. So, and I'm sorry well, I haven't put on a costume. I didn't know about this. <laughs> it's all right. I think we are all, all have a little bit of mad scientist in us. In us. Jeanette just you know, put it on the outside. Um, so my first question to you is, what inspired you to write this article that's been so well received? Well, mainly conversations with people around me in my research environment over the, literally over the four years of my PhD talking to other students, seeing other students and how much time they spend on the bench while I went off to do other things. But also talking to, having conversations or hear, overhearing comments from group leaders, from senior academics. Mm. I heard one person say that only those people who are not good enough for, for industry, no, for academia, go into industry. Mm. And I thought, how can a person in such a senior position who has spent so much time in this, in research, say something that's so far away from reality? Hmm. Um, how can we allow a culture like this to exist? And that was really when I started thinking about writing something that hopefully can help to change this culture. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, how many of you who are watching here uh, have felt a disconnect between what a lot of lab heads or PIs or thesis committee members think and say about the career path or options for PhDs and what's actually available, like what's actually happening in reality, right? A lot of this is due to, a lot of you saying yes, a lot of this is due to, um, you know, confirmation bias, uh, something also in psychology called uh, justification, self-justification. You get this culture that perpetuates itself by saying, oh, the academic career path is still there, plenty of options, you just have to work harder to be a professor, for example. Um, it's not based on the data or how things are now, it's just based on somebody who chose that path, justifying it to themselves, perhaps without knowing it. So I, I love the article. You definitely have to check it out. Um, you know, one thing I know that the article touches on too is what other paths are available for PhDs. And I think you did a great job of discussing this and discussing it importantly how to decide on career paths and how to gather data on options. And I know you do something called a basically a perpetual pros and cons list right, that you keep without yes. you as you hear about different positions, etc. Can you talk about this perpetual pros and cons list? Yes, essentially more or less a kind of diary, but not on a daily basis, but based on experiences. If I have very, a very bad day in the lab, a frustrating experience, or just had a very boring week of analyzing data, or whatever it is really, whatever task it was, I reflect on that kind of thing and I just make a note of what have I done, why did I not enjoy it, and then that list accumulates over years, really. Mm. And at the same time, you make a note if you have a really exciting day, if you have a very interesting conversation, a really elevating discussion with someone, a personal connection. And that way, for example, I found that 
I really had this kind of feeling of excitement whenever I came back from conferences, whenever I had interactions with lots of people, discussions about science, mm. but not really when I was doing the science myself. When I was in the lab for a whole week, just doing experiments, not talking to anyone, I never really enjoyed those parts of the work. Yeah, and, and that kind of, you know, really intel on yourself is valuable. Like, are you even cataloging what you enjoy or not enjoy? And I think PhDs, in large part, we can get distracted by certain things, right? We can get distracted by a job title that sounds impressive. We can get distracted by an option that just seems like it might get us recognition or make us seem important. Um, I think we're more at risk than that because most of us are driven and we want to have an impact, right? So we kind of intensity match impact to... It's very easy. I mean, research, research is a lot of fun. and People go into research because they enjoy it and it's super exciting. And then you get bogged down into it and suddenly two years have gone by and you haven't even thought about what to do next or yeah. what you might be good at or what you like. Mm. So I like, to, I like to break down career thinking into these four different steps, really, where you have to start with a self-assessment. You have to understand who you are, what you're good at, and what you like to do. And I think that's already where a lot of people fail in terms of just moving on into the next position along the chain, starting a postdoc, never really thinking if, not even if they would ever make it to professorship, which yes. obviously most won't, but also not thinking if they would actually like that job and if yes. they would be good at it, if it would be the best fit for them personally. Yeah. And then there are a lot of things you can do to find out and I think a PhD is a good time for exploration and to do other things on the side and try to really be reflective and understand what kind of tasks am I good at, what is, what, where are my strengths, and what do I enjoy is just as important. Yeah, and notice, just to jump in, those two things are both in your transition plan, right? So some of you are like, I don't have time to dig deeper into who I am. I don't have time for this self-analysis, my strengths and weaknesses. Um, you know, we tend to be a bit practical and we think, I just want to get to that job right now. Like, I know what I'm doing, whatever. But that, you know, people like that tend to get into jobs that aren't a good fit. They leave six months later. They're not happy. Don't let that be you. Do a little bit of self-analysis. Well, you just said earlier in the data about life satisfaction and job satisfaction. These kind of things, job satisfaction, career success, that's a personal definition. That's a different thing for everyone. Mm. It might mean financial rewards for some people. It might mean job uh, job, uh, well, work-life balance and family for other people. It might mean a certain geography or a certain type of job where you interact with lots of people or where you don't interact with people. But you have to find out for yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Someone else can tell you these kind of things. And I'm just making sure. Uh, I think we. I was off video when I was talking. How about now? Can you guys see me when I talk? Is it jumping to whoever's talking or is it still spotlighting? Um, both of us, Philip. Okay. So we're good to go now. Um, I think, you know, the self-analysis part is something that is missing. The last kind of line of questioning I wanted to talk to you about is what kind of things that you can do? You know, you've, you've, you've discussed this before. You've written about it, whether it's volunteering or organization, you know, organizing events, adding value in some way that will help you have more experiences and figure out what you want. Like if you do the self-analysis, you still don't know what you want, what's the, the end of the equation, the last steps, the things you can do to expose yourself to new things? Well, I think taking initiative and organizing events, for example, and going out there, doing things, being on committees, um, exploring the outside world within or outside of the university, really, 
um, that is already part of the self-assessment because you get to know yourself better by doing these kind of tasks. If mm. you've never had responsibility for a budget as the treasurer of a committee, you won't know if that's something you might like. And that's the first step, really. But it can obviously also help you develop networks, talk to people. And that's really the second part of the career development for me is learning about the world, trying to figure out what jobs are out there, what do people do, what is it on a day-to-day -day basis. And mm. I think for that, it's you can read as much online as you want, but you will never really get down to the day-to-day -day experience. So you really have to talk to people. I'm, I really like this kind of idea of information interviews with even with strangers, but also just at conferences or in your environment. Mm. Observe where people are, what they do, and whether you might enjoy that kind of role. Fantastic. Thank you, Philip. Really great to have you. And, um, Thanks a lot for having me. Enjoyed everything you said. This takes us to the end of another Cheeky Scientist radio show. Thank you for tuning in, and remember to join us for our next live show, which we stream on our Facebook page as well as our YouTube page every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Just go to facebook.com forward slash mycheekyscientist to watch us live or go to our Cheeky Scientist YouTube page again every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. If you want to learn more about Cheeky Scientist, you can go to cheekyscientist.com. As always, remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional. Pum, pum,